Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Tellage Talks. And boy, this is a treat for me because I get a chance to sit down and talk to a guy that I've worked with for so many years, and I miss. I retired about six, seven, eight months ago, and I don't see this guy, Lou Maglio, day in and day out. Lou. How are you doing so far, my friend? Well, I'm doing great, John, and I feel likewise with what you just said. John and I sat next to each other for I don't know how many years, had to be 20 years, looked at the sunset virtually <laughs> every night together, but talk sports. I mean, that's... Yeah. I'm a big sports guy. I'm a newscaster, but I love sports, as you know. And sitting across from you, the dean of sports in my eyes in Cleveland, it's just been a pleasure to talk sports night after night with John Tellich. Well, Lou, you come at the sports fandom from a New York perspective. People may not know that you know, you're from uh, outside of New York City. A little bit about the, the background there, Lou. Yeah, I was born and raised in the suburbs of New York City. Went to college in, in upstate New York and grad school in Missouri. And then I started the whole thing with traveling around the country. And in fact, John and I worked together in different stations in yeah. Cedar Rapids, Iowa, back in 1977, 78, something like that. And then from there, I went to Greensboro, North Carolina. Then I came up here to Cleveland back in 1981. People ask me all the time, hey, do you still root for the Yankees? It's like, <laughs> there's no way. I'm, Cleveland is the home now. It's been 41 years, the majority of my life in Cleveland. So I'm Guardians and Browns and Cavs and, and Cleveland all the way. Lou, you grew up in that area, so you had your inclinations towards those types of sports teams. But when did you get the inclination, the feeling that I want to be someone that reports on what's going on in the news? Not sports, but just be a newscaster, reporter, anchor, that type of thing. It's really strange, John, and I look back at it now, and I remember being like 12 years old and watching the news on TV. And in those days, you always watched the nightly news with your family. It was part of the thing that you did every yeah, night. Very few stations, obviously. Very few stations. I mean, this was going back, we're talking before cable, right? Yep. There, so there's three networks. There was PBS. But as a family, we watched the news every single night. It was just part of what we did after dinner. And so I started just really loving the thought of actually working in the news one day. Even back then, I loved the idea of being a sportscaster, potentially. Mm -hmm. And I convinced my dad one Christmas to buy me a tape recorder. <laughs> and you probably yeah, did, the did the same, same thing, stuff. right? That's yes. what sportscasters do. But I remember turning down the volume on games on TV and trying to announce it in my tape recorder and playing it back for my dad, who was very encouraging. But I knew that I had a lot of work to do and worked really hard just to get comfortable doing the games, even on my personal tape recorder. But that's really how it all started from there and I never wavered I was one of those guys I'm really blessed John because I just love the idea of working in broadcasting and you see so many people struggling what am I going to do with my life what am I going to major in in college but for me there was never any doubt I wanted to do this so everything was geared toward working in TV and as you started your quote-unquote fledgling career you know the early years <laughs> oh yeah um you probably thought you knew it all. You know, you're out there in, as you mentioned, in, in Iowa or down in the Carolinas. But when did you kind of come to the realization that there's still a lot to learn? And, I, and I've got to kind of 
dogmatically learn this stuff. You know what? There was a time years ago when a guy that I worked with uh, for years named Fred Griffith, mm. and people would ask him all the time, you Cleveland know. Cleveland Institution. Institution. I love Fred, learned so much from Fred. But Fred used to tell me there was no substitute for stick time. And I, it, it could have meant two things, stick meaning the microphone or stick meaning how you fly a plane. But it was just a matter of experience. And you think you're okay, but you're not really experienced. And you don't have that depth of knowledge that you can only develop after doing it a while. Sure. And John, you know, I mean, things go wrong when you're on the air. Things don't go properly and perfectly all the time. So if you have the experience, you know how to handle all of those things. So. I learned that from Fred just, you know, it's not a matter of necessarily the technical skills, but just being around and having the experience to handle things. And even in when I went to college in Missouri, and I brag about University of Missouri Journalism School because it's such a good journalism school, but, you know, they did not let you get away with anything over there. There were, you know, no mistakes. You had to be really, really good. So when I was in college, I was working in radio stations, and you're right thinking, hey, this is pretty good for a college kid. Then you go to Missouri and you find out, whoa, not in their eyes am I pretty good. So you kind of realize there's a lot to learn and maybe you never really learned it all because I think we're still learning today, learning sure. our craft and practicing our craft. And I've been doing this for way more than 40 years now. Who did you watch as a kid? Who kind of uh, influenced you? I watched all of the network guys, and uh, I hope your audience is old enough to remember the Huntley <laughs> Brinkleys, the Walter Cronkites. I remember Dan Rather. I remember all the, the major events. And, you know, I tell you what, I remember coming home from school one day, and it was a fateful day, a horrible day in U.S. history when President Kennedy was shot. Yeah. And all of the coverage, and I just could not keep my eyes off the TV screen. So whoever was on that day, there's a young reporter in Dallas named Tom Gerald, who later on became a major reporter at ABC News. But I remember watching these guys and thinking, you are right in the heart of history here. Tough history that day, horrible history, but it's another one that really increased my infatuation with the idea of being part of the business, is just being part of history as it's made. Mm -hmm. And as you m moved yourself and your, your, uh, your family and what have you uh, across the country, were there new challenges for you? Did you have goals as you went in each particular market? How did that work for you? Well, that's another story, John. You know, I was a, a newscaster in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I decided uh, that, you know what? I like being on camera, but I wanted to try my hand at producing. So I was a producer for a little bit in North Carolina. Then I got hired to be a producer, I'm sorry, in Iowa. Then I got hired to be a producer at North Carolina. And I started to get the bug to be back on TV. And I had a buddy of mine who worked in Cleveland TV at the time, and it's funny how things have changed, sure. but he said, if you come to Cleveland, you'll probably get a chance to both be a producer and do some reporting on the side. And that's exactly how it played out. I didn't know which path I would take, but there was an old television show at Channel 5 at the time called The Morning Exchange, and out of the clear blue, they nominated me to be one of the co-hosts, and you talk about being very nervous because that was a very big show at the time. Fred Griffith was the host and they tapped me to do it and I wanted to do it, but I was 
quite frankly, scared to do it mm-hmm. and actually told them I didn't want to do it. And I remember the general manager of the television station taking me out to lunch and saying, you know, I think it would be a good idea if you did this. And if not for him telling me in that uh, not so gentle way, by the way, I think he wanted me to take the job. Who knows where I'd be right now? I might still be a producer. Did you lack confidence? What was keeping you from it? I think it was the confidence factor because I hadn't really been on camera in that way in a long time. It was a big show, and quite frankly, I was, you know, uptight about it. I felt like, you know, I had a lot to prove. I was working with legendary people at the television station, a very popular show, and I was concerned I would be, quite frankly, in over my head. I think it was 26 years old at the time. Sure. So, you know, young, but uh, old enough to know it was a big step in my career and I had to make it right. And as you mentioned, a legendary station with some mm-hmm. incredible figures, you know, the likes of a Dorothy Foldine mm-hmm. being there at Channel 5 in those years. Gib Shanley yep. was a great uh, uh, sportscaster, you know, Don Webster. So you're learning, you're seeing these people, you're being, every day you're absorbing more and more of what they have to give you experience wise but you still don't have that i'm one of the guys feeling in your head because you needed that more confidence you had to have the confidence and one of the things i learned from fred in fact all of those people you mentioned is the importance of being yourself i think for the longest time I wanted to be perfect on camera. I didn't want to make any mistakes. I wanted to enunciate everything properly. And the result of that was, I think, just being stiff, being too formal, not being myself on the air. And now some people over the years told me the the best way to fail in the business is to try to be somebody else. Hmm. And I kind of learned because there are people in the business who, who are perfect and can handle that. But I felt like I had to be myself. I had to have some sense of humor. I had to be okay with making mistakes, not to worry, not to panic. I think I really grew in those years, uh, just understanding who I was and what the best best path would be for me. What'd you learn from someone like a Dorothy Foldheim, who was, uh, as I mentioned, quite, quite a legend, a little lady, a fiery yes. gal with the red hair, Lucio Ball red hair, yep. uh, who took on some of the biggest, most infamous characters in American history, whether it was uh, back in the Democratic uh, yes. National uh, mm-hmm. Convention that was going on, and she went after Jerry Rubin, mm-hmm. if I recall, uh, others. Uh, what did you learn from her? What, it it might have been Abby Hoffman. I'm not sure exactly. Was it Abby Hoffman? I think, I think you're right. Abby. But he said something disparaging about police officers, okay, and I'll just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. And Dorothy, all four foot ten of her, threw him off the set. She said, get out of here. I'm not talking to you. Get out. And he was just astonished that this little lady would say that, but that's how she was. Was. Dorothy was a fiery four foot ten inch lady and, and you know the history of Dorothy to be a war correspondent in World War II as a woman I mean this was just unheard of I mean she was a trailblazer and what I learned from her and I used to go to her office virtually every day just to drink in the wisdom and mm-hmm. I just loved hearing her stories her war stories and she paid me a great compliment one day that I haven't forgotten and again it's 40 years she said you know what I like about you Lou and I go what is it Dorothy she said you have fire in your belly I like people with fire in their belly and I just loved hearing that from her and just I loved her dearly and she was just how do you say it one of a kind what was it like for you, You and I had the experiences of being a uh, young, shooting film, shooting tape, and 
being kind of like a one-man band learning this business. Yeah, people don't realize, John, all that we did. It's uh, become such a specialized business. Yeah. But, you know, I can recall the days where they handed you a film camera, no <laughs> videotape, no hard drive, a film camera. And they said, okay, you got to shoot your own story. And I think, and you'll remember this as well as I do, I think a 200-foot can of film, which was... 16 millimeter film and I think it was two or three minutes and you had to do your entire story in that two or three minutes you know then when tape came around people would take 20 30 minutes to to tape a two-minute story on the air so you learned a lot how to economize and how to ask questions in a succinct manner and get the right answers that you needed to put your story together but I remember you know I was not a photographer but I had to be one to do that job and Every single day when you'd come back with your story and you'd huh. give it to the film processor, processor, I was always a nervous wreck thinking, is it going to come out today? Is yeah. it going to be overexposed? Is it going to be underexposed? And then you had to edit the film. You remember that? And they had these things called hot splicers. Yes. And you had to edit them together. And when the story was on the air, you're just hoping your splice is held <laughs> and the film didn't break in the middle of a story. So I've been through a lot of things in the business, but it's all been a blast. It has been a blast. And and, and again, I think one of the keys to surviving is being so adaptable. Mm -hmm. And how many different venues did you and I work with? We started with film, obviously, mm -hmm. and then you transitioned to tape. Go on and continue along the line. Let, well, let yeah, know. then you go to tape and now you get into hard drives and you do have to be adaptable. You know, I've been one of those guys who's been able to do, and I'm fortunate, a lot of different things. So, you know, whatever station needed, whether they needed hard news, soft news, live reports, anchoring sports in a fill-in basis, I was able mm -hmm. to do. And now with social media, John, you have adapted to that and you just have to if you want to keep working in our business you have to adapt to the ever-changing business and you know I look at where we are today and how much things have changed in the past even 10 years it's yes. been a quantum leap in technology and so many things are different these days you wonder where it's going to be you can't even make a guess as to where it's going to be 10 years from now what kind of advice would you give for a young uh, person who's thinking of entering college or maybe not thinking of entering college but has that quote and quote that uh, dorothy referred to you as having that fire in the belly uh, there's really no traditional way to do it now, is is there? Not like what we did, John. You know, we did the thing where you started out in smaller markets, you worked your way up and learned different technologies. Things are different today. But I think it does take the fire in your belly and something that we talk about all the time. You have to have the passion for it. And you have to realize, especially now, it's a 24-hour-a-day operation, seven days a week. And are you willing? Are you willing to work? Christmas Day, Thanksgiving yeah. Day, holidays, and I did that for years. And every time I do talk to a young person, that's one of the stories I always tell them. When my sons were small, I worked 11 straight Christmas days. And yeah. I remember getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning on Christmas uh, morning and putting their toys together. Then they'd get up and play with their toys. And then around noontime, I'd have to say, boys, enjoy your toys because dad's going to work, you know. And, and that's part of it. And if you're not willing 
willing to do that. If you're one of those people that at closing time is five o'clock and you've got your jacket on and you're looking at the clock at five of five, this is not the real business for you. You've yeah. just got to be committed, willing to work long hours, willing to take on big stories. I mean, these big stories that we cover, yeah. whatever it is, whether it's the convention, whether it's the Indians in the World Series, and they were the Indians back then, <laughs> You have to be prepared on those days to work 18 hours. And if you don't want to do that, yeah. then there's something wrong because you need to, to really take advantage of those opportunities and those big stories. So that's what I would say, passion, work hard. And in my case, it's always helped me. I'm just a curious person. If I don't yeah. know something, I look it up. So have that wealth of knowledge. You don't have to know a lot of depth necessarily about every single thing, but if you're gonna be successful in the business, you have to know at least a little bit about a lot of things. I think a real key to success in our business is the whole team concept. We're all fairly vain because we like the attention. I think we all would admit the notoriety, hey, I saw you on the air, that, that does stroke the ego. So I think we have to be very honest there. But this is still not, Lou Maglio and the Fox 8 News team. This is the Fox 8 News team with Lou Maglio, with uh, uh, Kenny Crump, Kenny uh, Carmen doing the sports, and and PJ and your co-anchors. It's not just about people don't tune in particularly for one shining star, as it were. It's, no, it's, it's a t and I think. I think people have to understand that uh, it, it's all teamwork related that makes this a successful operation or anyone for that matter. Any business to be a successful operation, you have to feel like you're a team. You don't stand alone. You're not better than anybody else. And I always tell people that say, man, you guys at Fox 8, you seem to like each other so much. You seem to be so friendly. It comes across on the air that way. And it does because that's how we are off the air. We talked about your relationship with me for more than 20 years sitting across from one another. When I look in our newsroom and I see these people, I don't see just reporters and co-workers. Yeah. I see friends, you know, and I know everything about their lives, their private lives, their wives, their husbands, their families. And I really think that is so important in building that relationship. And the viewers do see that. And we're able to convey that relationship, that friendship on the air. And it's a matter of trust as well. You're talking to a reporter. We talk in advance. What should we chat about? What are you comfortable chatting about? It's all part of putting a system together and a team together that makes it work. Individual if you're an individual, and again, like sports too, if you think you can stand alone and do it yourself, chances are you're not going to get very far. How do you like today's atmosphere of everybody has a take, everybody is a news consumer or a person who aggregates news on their cell phone, on their Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, no matter what it may be? Uh, obviously things have changed, but yeah, you know, can, can you live with it? Is it, is it, does it burn your butt or what do you think? Well, it's kind of the wild, wild west out there, John. And while I like having so many more voices out there and new voices, so you can mm -hmm. hear various opinions and stuff, 
I do worry about the misinformation that's put out there. I really do. You know, we come from an age where everything had to be just so, everything had to be right. You had to prove everything. Yeah, before it even saw the light of day. Absolutely. You needed, you know, we talk about you needed two sources, you needed three sources on a story. You just didn't put stuff out there. And I can recall being at a party once and a a friend of my wife said, you know, why did I read this on somebody's blog and you guys didn't have it on the news? And I had to explain to her, you know, we have different rules of engagement on the news. We have to make 100% sure we get it right. And our management here, we'd rather be second on a story and have it right than rush in a story and have it wrong. So, so many voices out there on the one hand, it's good to read all these different opinions, but I would just caution people when they read stuff, don't necessarily read and believe everything you see. Get other sorts of verifications. That's really the way to go. And young people uh, nowadays, they'll want that gratification, that, that, that pat on the back early on in the process of putting a story together uh, when, again, when we were kind of coming up, there were no pats on the back. There was nothing until you filed that story. And obviously it had to be 100% correct uh, or there would be hell to pay. I mean, you, sure. you there were consequences. I think what we're, we're getting into today is the lack of consequences for people that just throw stuff out there, whoopsie, and wasn't accurate. And there's a little bit of fallout, but no you know, nobody loses their job. Yeah, and th- that's really a problem because there should be some accountability, you know, not to sound like an old guy, but again, your credibility is what you hang your hat on in this business. You want people, I mean, I want people who watch me to say, okay, he knows Cleveland, he loves Cleveland, he's been here a long time, he's not going to get it wrong, he's not going to lead us astray. Of course, I want them to like me, I yeah. want them to think I have a sense of humor, I want to show that from time to time, but the bottom line is I want them to trust me, and when people People are going online and putting out information that's false and still getting more followers as a result of that. It's like that's all they need, right? More followers, 100 more, 100 more, 1,000 more, whatever it is, by putting out false information. So I would just tell anybody listening to this, check it out for yourself. Do the due diligence. That's the important thing. It really is. And I think there's just so many times when the vanity outweighs the, mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the need to be super professional and trying to get it right uh, before you go go any any further. And I, I think that's kind of a lesson for a lot of people in the business uh, that are just either getting into it or only have five to ten years under their belt. Um, take your time and make sure everything is buttoned down before you kind of jump with it. And opinions. Um, you're an anchor guy. You are a reporter and someone who's in everybody's uh, living room, as it were, quite frequently. You can't really be out there spouting your opinion. <laughs> Not and, at all. And and how do you take today's kind of trend where everybody wants, what's your take? What What's your take on this? What about the political climate or obviously here in sports? What's your take on the newest Guardians pitcher yep. not fulfilling mm-hmm. their duties or whatever? You know, it's funny because I get asked that all the time. What's your opinion? And I'm very careful about that, even in private settings where I don't want to give away my feelings about anything because, you know, we grew up in that day when the best thing was to be right down the middle and have viewers yep. not really know your opinion on this or that. Of course, it's obvious that with our sports teams, 
Yeah. Do I root for the Guardians? Sure, I do. That's right. obvious, you know, but not to the extent where if there's a negative story on the Guardians, you got to mention it. it. You have yep. to do it. Yep. Negative story on the Browns. And we've had a lot here lately. You, you have to report it. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. But you have to report it because that is what your job is. I mean, you're a fan, yes, but you do have to report on what's happening. So I never want anybody to know what part of the political spectrum I am on, though people often are free to guess that, and they do guess that. Right. So you really, really have to be careful the way the political climate is these days, no matter what you say, somebody from either side yeah. can parse it in whatever direction. So it makes it a little bit difficult, especially when you're in an ad lib situation, when scripted things, you can control yourself and know exactly what you're saying. But we do a lot of ad libbing as well. And you have to be so very careful not to betray the belief that you need to be right in the middle. You definitely don't want to skew in one direction or the other. Lou, you're a father of three, uh, married a beautiful woman. Yes. Uh, and for many years now, how many years now, and how did you and Colleen meet? We met in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And, uh, you know, the story is this. I was covering sports at the time, and I was very young man. So I'm going to tell <laughs> you the story. I was a very young man. I was covering sports, and I remember sitting on the sidelines during Iowa Hawkeye football games and and basketball games and there was one very attractive cheerleader john and i was talking to her and one night i was out for dinner and she came over to the table and she said hi would you like to meet my family and i went well yeah of course i want to meet your family well among the family was her sister, Colleen, my wife now, and we hit it off right away, and that was the end for me. But if not for me having that uh, relationship, it was a friendly relationship, never went beyond that. And again, I was 22, 23 years old at the time with the Iowa Hawkeye cheerleader. I probably never would have met my wife. That is funny. Yeah. So mm -hmm. now you have the three, the three mm -hmm. and then there's the family's expanded even more. Yeah, we have uh, a granddaughter, Lily, who's going to be three three years old, and then I have a 12-week-old grandson named Ray who is uh, stealing our hearts every <laughs> single day, as in Lily, so, as is Lily. So life is good, John. Life is really good. So what's the future? What, what, are, you, what are you looking at uh, moving forward? You know, people ask me, you know, you're at the age when you can retire, and I am at the age when I can retire, but, you know, I still like doing what I'm doing, and I suspect one day I'm just going to come in and think, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I've done it for 40, 50 years, and that's enough. I uh, haven't got to that stage yet, and I don't know when that stage will come, but I do know I want to really, really enjoy the grandkids. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not going to be working here forever, <laughs> that's for sure. I can certainly see the end is in sight. I just don't know when it'll come. And do you uh, find yourself biting your tongue on maybe advising your son uh, how to handle Lily or, or you know? Or Ray, absolutely. Or There's Ray. no doubt about that <laughs> because, you know, you, you could tell you say certain things and he'll look at you like, Dad, I know how to burp him, okay? You don't have to tell me how to burp. Or I'll say, you know, just kind of walk him around or put him in the car. Yes, Dad, I, I, I really understand that. So, Backseat driver. Yes. So you go through that one or two times and you realize he and his wife, Aaron, they know what they're doing. They're wonderful parents. They're taking great care of the kids.
Lou, it's always a pleasure, my friend. And this is one of the gifts of our business, the relationship. Yes, that we have, absolutely. Uh, with our buds that we've had a chance to work with. As you mentioned early in our interview, you were at one station in Cedar Rapids. I was at another. We learned from legends. You learned from one. I learned from Ron Gonder. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the principles that he taught me back in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, I still live absolutely. to this day. Yep. And publicly could never thank him enough. And I'm sure there's individuals in your life. But as the years go on, we've always been friends. We've always had a good time. And I think we've kept it at that because uh, I just couldn't imagine doing this business in a you know uh, um, sensitive uh, you know very uh, like a chamber where there's no emotion and no relationships uh, would not be the would not be the type of a business to be in. No, we would suffer immensely if we didn't have that sort of relationship. You know, the other thing I don't think we we talked uh, about. A lot of tension in the business. You know, as much fun as we have, yeah. there are deadlines every single day. And, you know, I remember you would come to work and there'd be major, major breaking sports news. And John come to work and, John, we need you at 4, 4.30, 5, <laughs> 5 6, 10 o'clock. You have to do something for Facebook. You have to do something for the web. You have to do something for other markets, other stations. Tremendous amount of, of tension involved in that. Yeah, it gets you going. It gets you energized. But there's a lot of tension. And that's really where it helps to have friends in the newsroom people who can help you out, people who you can lean on, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, that's another part of this thing. Relationships are just so very important, having success. Let's finish things off with maybe a couple questions about impactful events that you had the opportunity to be kind of, you know, front and center as the person who's relaying what's going on in this particular uh, avenue or arena towards uh, your viewers or folks that are relying on your information? Well, I always start with the most fun thing, John, and it had to be 2016. It had to be, now it didn't end as we would have liked for the then Cleveland Indians, but just to be there at Progressive Field, on the field, in the afternoon, watching the gates open and all those people clad in red uh, coming into the ballpark. It was just so much fun. It was so energizing to me. And to get a chance to interview a lot of the guys who were my heroes, you know, the, the Kenny Loftons, the Mike Hargroves, and all those other people from the Indians past. It was just so much fun. Love the heck out of that. Same year, different sort of environment was covering the Republican National Convention. Same thing, you know, watching all those celebrities coming by, but again, being part of history. I mean, it's just such a cool thing to be there as history is made. That was a phenomenal experience for me. And then, of course, the rescue of the three girls from Cleveland's near west side. And I'll never forget that day when we started getting phone calls. And in the newsroom, we thought, well, this can't possibly be, can't possibly be. Then more and more calls would come in. Then you'd call the police and they couldn't tell you anything initially, but you knew something was going on. And then going down there, my assignment was going to Metro Health Medical Center where they were being examined and seeing just multiple hundreds of people gathered inside waiting for any news and to have to do national stories. That day was on with the BBC. You talk about being an active day, but it was such a huge story and a wonderful story. And I have to tell you, you know, every day, every year that went by, it was less and less likely 
that they would be found alive. And then, you know, even for us, the emotion that we felt that day, these young girls are still alive. They're still with us. What a story that was. So, you know, as all the stories I've done, that one still today carries so much emotion with me. You know, when you take into account those great stories and those events, and then we think of the cool, calm, and collected anchor person sitting in the studio. We imagine the teleprompter parsing every word that you read. But people have to know in a lot of those situations, stuff's coming in, things are being said to you in your ear, you're looking at other devices for news. What's the key to ad-libbing and making it sound so coherent that it looks like it's all, seems like it's all been scripted? John, I really do believe, I really do believe it goes back to what I talked to before, just about having done it so many times. You have to be hyper-focused, hyper-focused on everything, just drinking in all the information. I'm not a great note-taker. Some of the people I've worked with take a lot of notes. I like to keep it in my head somehow, and it just works for me, but it's intense focus. Sometimes you need to you get so excited you feel like talking too fast and conveying too much information so you know just pull back a little bit slow down a little bit make sure everything you say is clear and concise and understandable and those are the moments i mean they do get your heart racing i mean let's face it that night that was completely unexpected and your heart is racing but you have to stay down and you have to compartmentalize what's going on and be a a reporter of the facts but uh, it's something that I think comes with experience and I think if that story or even the convention or even the Cleveland Indians in the World Series had come around when I was 25 Hmm. I don't know if I would have had the same depth the same understanding the same ability to convey what was going on as I did in my later years. He is the great Lou Maglio. <laughs> Thank you, you my exaggerate, friend. my friend, but it's a pleasure to be on with you. My pleasure, too. Thanks, Lou. Got it.